make a little funnel for God to fill you up. You don't want to, you don't want to just sit in the service and uh, ha- have God ignore you. You know, when I when I was a young kid and we would sit in school and we wanted the teacher to notice, we'd always wave our hands so that she'd be sure and look our way. And I I, th- I think I don't think I know God's going to do some miraculous things tonight when I finish. And I don't want us to miss what God has to do. I want us to be open, and it'd be all right with me if the Holy Spirit would do something I haven't even thought of. Would that be okay with you? Suppose he wanted to do something we hadn't even prayed and asked him to do. That'd be okay, too. Suppose he wanted to take us away we'd never been before. That's all right, too. So come, Holy Spirit. Have your way. Come, Holy Spirit, and breathe upon us. Come, Holy Spirit, and rain upon the dry places of our lives. And come, Holy Spirit, and teach your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Now, the test of anything is, does it work? If, If something doesn't work, it doesn't matter how great the advertisement is. It has somehow failed. And I've had a lot of experience with things which are advertised to work and they never work. Uh, For example, cosmetic creams. I haven't found a cosmetic cream yet that erases wrinkles. I don't care what the lotions say, there's nothing so strong that can lift up what used to be high and lift it up and has fallen to the floor. It just, uh, they haven't made lotion quite that, you know, powerful yet. Uh, so, so I understand this thing of advertising and the products do not work. And sometimes we have to ask ourselves a very honest question, and I don't want it to be a, you know, out loud answer for you. But I want us to consider a very serious question. Does Christianity work? Does it produce in human lives what we advertise it to do? That's, that's just a basic, basic question. There was a sign on a repair shop door, and the sign read, We fix anything and everything. Knock loudly, our doorbell doesn't work. <laughs> and I think sometimes that uh, that is the, the way the church is. We advertise we can fix anything and everything, But sometimes we have to knock loudly because the doorbell's not working. So the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is sold to us in the scripture from the very word of God himself as being the power of God. Uh, This is the way the the gospel is defined. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God. And so we, we ask ourselves... Does it produce what it is advertised to do? Is that miracle-working power available in a human life? Does it work? Uh, I, I am at a place in life where I do not cook like I once cooked. Uh, when my children were home, I, I would be in the kitchen every evening. But now it's just Jean and I, and we just tend to do a lot of uh, meals with staff, church people, so I I just don't cook like I used to. But there's one thing I absolutely love, and it is cookbooks. I just have a closet full of cookbooks, 
although I don't cook. So one day, Jean and I are in Cracker Barrel, and we're waiting for a table, and I'm over at the rack looking at the cookbooks. And Jean comes over and says, they've called our number. And I said, well, when you pay the bill as we leave, I'm going to run over here and buy this cookbook. And Jean looked at me and said, June, what will you do with a cookbook? You don't cook. So I've got to give him an answer, and I thought about it, and I said, well, every evening we'll sit together on the sofa, and I'll read the recipes to you of what I would have cooked if I had been going to cook, and we'll just read the cookbook together. <laughs> We're still reading the cookbooks, aren't we? <laughs> And I think sometimes that's the way we, we Christians can be. We, we read the book, and, and we're very good at reading the book, but sometimes we don't cook the book. And the book should produce in human life what it says it's going to produce. Now, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, he came to this time when his ministry upon the earth was going to transition. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ had been crucified. He had been resurrected from the dead, and he had spent a certain number of days appearing and meeting with disciples and talking to them about the things of the kingdom. So he spent about 40 days with these uh, disciples before he would ascend into heaven. And then the time of his ascension came. Now this is, a, this is a pivotal moment because human history and the program of God is about to go where it's never gone before, what I spoke to you about this morning. Uh, it, it's at this juncture where law ends and grace ends begins. It's this point where something is going to appear which has never been in the history of, of the world. It has been only in the mind of God, the building of a church. And Jesus is about to take his leave of his disciples. He's about to ascend into heaven, and he's going to give them one last word. He's going to instruct them because this building of the church, this work that is going to happen in the dispensation of grace is going to pass into the hands of people. It's no longer going to be in the hands of Jesus because Jesus will be seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father and people are going to carry on the redemptive plan of God. And it is absolutely essential that this thing work. It is absolutely imperative that it work. And when we understand that people are going to run the program, uh, there's a little bit of uh, nervousness in me about this. Uh, particularly when I read the story of the people Jesus is about to pass it to, none of them are outstanding leaders. Out of his top 12 guys, uh, one of them committed suicide. Uh, his top man cursed and denied that he even knew him. And out of all of the 12, only one had the courage to show up at the crucifixion and watch him die, John. The rest of them just cut and ran. And there was not one 
disciple at the tomb on the third day, even though Jesus had told them time and time again, I'll, I'll rise on the third day. It took two women to find that out, and they were there to, to anoint a dead body. They were not there to celebrate resurrection. So, I mean, we read this story, and uh, there, there's hardly any excellent leaders there. So what's Jesus going to tell these people? He's about to ascend, and the whole thing's going to go into their hands. Is he going to talk to them about leadership, intercession? Is he going to give them uh, principles of how to build a church, how to elect elders and deacons? And is he going to talk to them about programs? So we come to the book of Acts, and, and here are his final words. Now, would you agree with me? Final words are important. These are his final instructions. And Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Jesus, being assembled together with these disciples, commanded, I would like us to note, it was not a suggestion. It was not an opinion. Maybe you might like to do this. It is a commandment. I would think it's just as real as any commandment of God. He commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but they should wait for the promise of the Father, which said he, you've heard of me. Now, these, these disciples had heard of that promise of the Father. He had told them that he must go away and that the Father was going to send another in his place. And he had talked to them repeatedly about this. I must go away and another one is going to come. And he had told them this is the promise of the Father. So this was something that they all recognized. Then in verse 5, he said, For John truly baptized with water, but you are going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now this is the first time in, in normal human experience, this is going to happen. This is a place that humanity has never gone, this baptism with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been active th since the beginning of creation. The Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament, but there, there's no record that the Holy Spirit ever was, that a person was ever baptized with the Holy Spirit. In, in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, now something's coming, and you're going to have to wait for this. The Father has promised it, and you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, or verse 8, Jesus continues, and he said, but you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. You shall receive power, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. You shall receive power. And he said to these disciples, now you've got to go, and you've got to wait for this. And then the Bible tells us he uh, ascended into heaven. These were his last words. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I command you to do this. 
because we must understand uh, there's something here that, that's going to make the program uh, of the church, that's going to make the work of grace, that is going to so impact human lives that human history will forever be different. This, this coming of this baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now these disciples had already encountered the Holy Spirit after Jesus had been resurrected. If you read John chapter 20, the resurrected Lord appeared to his disciples and he had a conversation with them in an upper room. And John 20 verse 22 tells us that he breathed upon them and said to these disciples, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. So we must assume that when Jesus said to them, oh, You're going to go to Jerusalem and be baptized with the Holy Spirit, that these disciples had already had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And in my opinion, these disciples had been born again they had acknowledged that Jesus was Lord, that he was resurrected from the dead, and Jesus had breathed the Holy Spirit into them. And, and this Holy Spirit lived in them because every born-again believer has the Holy Spirit living on the inside of them. But this Holy Spirit, which had been breathed into them, was not the same as this baptism with the Holy Spirit that they had to wait for. So we, we are told that these disciples did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They went to an upper room and they waited. And, and in, in that waiting, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2 that finally the day of Pentecost was fully come, and this supernatural thing happened. There was this sound from heaven. Uh, please let us understand, this was a sound from heaven. It, it was something that, that was, uh, I think, unearthly in the sound, and it was like this rushing mighty wind and tongues of fire set upon the head of all 120 disciples and believers who had gathered in an upper room. And Acts chapter 2 verse 4 tells us that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to do something humans had never done. They began to speak with other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And then we read a few chapters over about these disciples who had been baptized with the Holy Spirit, and they affected the city of Jerusalem. They affected the area of Judea, eventually Samaria, and Acts tells us in a, a later chapter that they had turned the world upside down. And it was a group of men and women who had simply been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now my question is, what happened in this baptism with the Holy Spirit that they did not already have? Because the Bible teaches us very clearly you cannot be a Christian without the indwelling Holy Spirit. Every born again Christian 
has relationship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we understand that. But these disciples, something came into their lives that was not that. And it is very simply stated for us by Jesus himself. He said, you are going to receive power. You are going to receive power. Now, you would think, well, did they not receive power back there when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit? Obviously not. Otherwise, there was no reason for Jesus to say, you shall receive power. So it was this specific impartation of power. And, and the way it is recorded in the scripture, it is just specifically imparted as salvation. When we're born again, salvation is imparted. When we're baptized with the Spirit, there's this impartation of power. And, and it is a definite impartation, this moment when power comes. John the Baptist knew this was going to come. And it is recorded in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist understood it, even though he, he did not actually experience it as he spoke about it. He said, there's one coming after me. And John the Baptist did not even mention the fact that he was going to save people. He said, this one that's coming after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to baptize you with fire. And this fire is going to burn up everything that is useless and bad, this, this impartation. And fire changes the nature of things. How many understand if we set this podium on fire, in a couple of hours it's going to look different? Uh, you understand uh, if you set your hair on fire, uh, it, it's going to create some reaction in you. You aren't just going to sit there and saying kumbaya while your head burns up. I mean, you know, there's something about fire that, that's uh, very uh, dynamic. Our brother Tom told us today that word power is dunamis, and it is literally uh, the word we translate dynamite, dynamo, dynamic. And if we bring dynamite into this room and blow it up, everything changes. There's no way anybody would come by and not recognize something powerful happened here. Dynamite has changed the landscape. Fire has changed the way things are. And, and so when we talk about this power that is going to come, it's not just this, this little thing that is going to happen that's just going to kind of be part two to salvation. It is a very dynamic thing that is not only going to affect the person who receives it, but it's going to affect the culture. It's going to go widespread. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, eventually the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, there's a lot of controversy in our religious world uh, about this. Uh, you just have all kinds of opinions depending on what stream of religion uh, you fellowship with, what, the way you were brought up. Goodness, I've heard all kinds of things uh, said to me about tongues. You know, when, what I used to hear in 1969 when I was a Methodist, newly baptized with the Holy Spirit, 
uh, people who knew nothing about it, would say to me, uh, you better be careful about tongues. That speaking in tongues is of the devil. And I thought about that, and I thought, well, it's, if it's of the devil, why don't people in strip joints speak in tongues? <laughs> why aren't the people in the bars speaking in tongues? Why aren't the people who are out shooting and robbing and maiming and killing speaking in tongues while they're, they're doing it? Just all kinds of crazy things. So, so we, we are going to consider, is there any other way to have power? Because, you know, we religious people certainly want power, but sometimes we do not want to go the way God wants to take us. So can we just choose our own routes to power? Well, let's, let's consider the, the life of Jesus. Now, Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, and he is made flesh. So, you know, it's hard for us to understand that, but Jesus is God in the flesh. And he, he departed himself from the glory, the uh, magnificence of heaven, and took upon himself the form of a man, and he lived life as a man. But we understand that the Holy Spirit was active in the life of Jesus from, from his creation in Mary's womb. The Holy Spirit worked because we're told in Luke that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and that the Holy Spirit... Uh, caused her to conceive in her womb. So there's the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, through the childhood and the early years of Jesus, we're not given much information, but we do know that by age 12, Jesus had grown in wisdom and statue and favor with God and man. And he was in Jerusalem arguing or debating, discussing, uh, the Judaistic religion with, with the teachers of the law. And he made this statement when his parents came to find him and to take him back to Nazareth. Did you not know I must be about my father's business? So we would assume from that that there was some activity of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life revealing to him as a 12-year-old boy that he had to be about the father's business. But we really don't know a lot about Jesus until age 30. And up until age 30, Jesus was a carpenter. And he lived in a town of Nazareth. There's, there's not uh, any record that he did any unusual things. Uh, there's no record that he stood out in, in society. Uh, we know that he never did a miracle there because the Bible talks about his first miracle was at a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Uh, so, so Jesus lives in Nazareth for 30 years, and he has to wait for this impartation. He has to wait for this moment when he is released to do the work, the assignment, the prophetic thing, that he has been sent to do. And we are told that he goes to River Jordan because John the Baptist is there baptizing people in water. And Jesus, 
at age 30, goes to River Jordan and is baptized by John the Baptist in water. And Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, says clearly that he saw uh, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon Jesus. So here's the specific thing said in Scripture that the Spirit of God at River Jordan lit upon, I want you to note the preposition, upon Jesus. And then Jesus goes after a period of time to his hometown of Nazareth, and he goes to the synagogue. He opens the scrolls to Isaiah, and in Luke 4, verse 18, Jesus preaches his first sermon, and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. First time Jesus has ever made this statement that we know of. The Spirit has come upon me. And then he went on to say, and I'm going to open blinded eyes, and I'm going to set oppressed people free, and I'm going to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then after he preached that sermon, he went out and did what he said. And so we have to believe Jesus had to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon him. And this is what Acts 1.8 says. It says, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come, not in you, but upon you. Amen. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is upon me. And we do not really think through to the end of Jesus' relationship with the Holy Spirit. But Jesus was going to reach a point in his life when he could do nothing for himself. And it was when he died upon the cross. And the Bible tells us emphatically he could not raise himself from the dead. And Jesus was totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit to raise him from the dead. And the Holy Spirit did raise him from the dead. Jesus did not raise himself. The Holy Spirit raised himself from the dead. And this is a statement about life, that life pushes us to places where we can do nothing for ourselves. It puts us in graves where we are hopeless and we have no ability and we, at that point, have the great Holy Spirit of God, hallelujah, who will come and resurrect us out of our sin and our hopelessness and our confusion and our problems. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jean and I were at a meeting. We were both speaking. It's the last day, Sunday. About 300 people were there. We were on a high platform, and we were seated over here on the left. And, you know, it was the two of us and the praise team, so the congregation was looking at us, and we are looking at them. The leader of the meeting said, now, before you preach, pointed to Gene, he said, we'll serve communion. And we said, okay. And so they come out of the kitchen door, and the way they were going to serve communion, they had a huge platter. I mean, it was this big with this huge mound of bread on it. it. It mounded up like this, and they had cut the center out of the bread. 
And we were supposed to put you know, our fingers in and pull out a little piece of bread and then our little grape juice. So that was the way the communion was supposed to go. Now, I don't know what happened to me. I was tired. Maybe I didn't think. But I didn't put in two fingers. I put in a whole hand, and I pulled out a small loaf of bread. I'm telling you, that bread rose from my hand. And I, everybody's looking at me like she's about to prophesy. You know, she's, she's got this strong prophetic word. And Gene's sitting by me on the platform, and everybody's looking at my bread. And he turns around and sees the bread and breaks into hysterical laughter in the middle of the, you know, the communion. So he puts his head between his knees like he's praying, you know, <laughs> and he's just hysterically laughing. And if I hadn't been on a church platform, I'd have beat him with the bread, you know, and told him to shut up. <laughs> I had that Christian jam. I couldn't beat him with that loaf of bread. And I thought, well, what am I going to do with the bread? And I thought, well, I'll just tear a little piece off and throw it on the floor. And then I thought, well, I can't do that. They said it was the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't want to throw our body on the floor. And then I thought, well, I'll open my handbag and put him in my handbag. <laughs> I thought, not that nasty thing. That'd be like going to hell, you know, to descend into that. And I thought, what am I going to do with this bread? And thank God I finally finished eating it before Gene said the amen to his sermon. I ate it for the rest of the, of the service and finished it right before his altar call. So I was very glad I, I finished it. But people, this is the way life is. The tray of life just passes by us. And sometimes you put your hand in and you got a loaf you don't know what to do with. And this is what the Bible means when it says you're going to receive power. There's something that's going to be very dynamic here. It's going to put the pieces together and make it work. Now, I, I want to talk, I, I want to talk from a very personal level uh, about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit did for me. And I will, of course, speak from the scriptural level also. This thing of, of speaking in tongues was, was a rather odd thing for me, but it wasn't a big thing for me. I understood from the scripture that uh, they spoke with other tongues, and I thought, well, uh, I will speak with tongues when I'm baptized with the Spirit. I did speak with tongues. But I wasn't one of these people that just prayed in tongues every day. Uh, by this time, we were in a, the Pentecostal church that I spoke of this morning. And when they prayed in tongues, I would pray in tongues. And when they, you know, did things with tongues, I would. But I was not a woman who every day prayed in tongues. I really saw no reason to do it because I had just spoken in tongues. And it, it really didn't mean a lot to me personally. And it was probably a few months after I had been baptized with the Holy Spirit, our son Mark, who was five years old, was playing in our backyard, and the child next door sprayed something in Mark's eyes. We never really determined what it was, but they were playing. He sprayed some kind of caustic substance in our son's eyes. And uh, when I heard Mark crying and I ran to the backyard, Mark 
was screaming he could not see. And he was rubbing his eyes like this. I pulled his hands away from his eyes, and it was horrible. His eyes were like jello coming out of the sockets. They were swollen, red, and he was screaming, I can't see, I can't see. And so Gene just grabbed him up. We were about three blocks from the hospital. We lived in a downtown area. And Gene said, I'm taking him to the, a hospital emergency room. You pray. And we had our other son there, so I remained home. I went into our living room to pray, and I couldn't pray. I don't know if you've ever been so upset you just can't pray. Uh, I, was, I was nervous. I was scared. And every time I'd close my eyes to pray, I'd think, my, my five-year-old son is blind. I'm going to have a blind child. And I could hear Mark screaming, I can't see, I can't see. And I had been taught in that Pentecostal church where everybody runs around, you know, that um, when you don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit will make intercession for you with other tongues. I had heard them say that. I had never done that. But for the first time in my life, I found myself in a place where I could not pray. I could not put two English words together. And... So I did what I had been told to do by those Pentecostals. I began to pray with tongues. And I was praying for my son and his healing. I had probably prayed maybe five minutes. And the only way I can describe it, it is like God dropped a blanket over me of peace. And I cannot just, you know, define how I knew, but I knew that 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 he was all right. I just knew that. And when Jean came home from the hospital, Jean told the story to me, and he said, June, we were en route to the hospital, and Mark was screaming and crying, and he said, I came to a stop sign, and I, I looked to see if traffic was coming, and I put my hand on Mark's head and said, Father, heal him in Jesus' name. And he said, when we went through the stop sign and had gone less than a block, I knew that Mark wasn't crying anymore, and I turned and looked, and God had instantly healed his eyes. His eyes had returned to normal, and even the emergency room doctors could find absolutely nothing wrong with his eyes. It was a miracle of God for our little five-year-old son, but what struck me, people, is I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Five minutes after prayer. And I thought, I, di I didn't need Gene to come home and tell me this. I knew this. And, and that afternoon, I, I sat down and I thought about it. And I thought, dear God, I, I've touched something here supernatural. There's something going on beyond me here. Uh, something has happened here. And I have made contact with, with the supernatural spirit world of God. And I knew it before any human being told it to me. So I went to the Bible and began to read about praying with other tongues. And Paul says when we pray with other tongues, our understanding is unfruitful. The mind becomes unfruitful, and it is the spirit that is praying. That's right. So I, I came to understand that praying in tongues, when we pray in tongues at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, for the first time in our lives, we're going to do something that the human mind doesn't understand. 
Because when we pray with other tongues, we're not making up words in our head. It's coming from the Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit giving us utterance. It is not us saying words. The Holy Spirit gives us utterance. The Holy Spirit prays for us. And I saw that this baptism with the Spirit and this speaking with tongues was not just so we'd have Pentecostal denominations and God see if, if human beings would do dumb, stupid things like speak with tongues. But it was a dethroning of the human mind and that the leadership of life was going to move from this thing that sits on our shoulders and tries to dominate our lives, and it was going to go from mind to spirit. And we were going to be spirit-led. Out of our spirits, the issues of life are going to be settled. We're going to be led by the spirit. And this baptism of the Holy Spirit, is, is this transition, this dethroning of the mind. And it's not that the human mind is bad, but the human mind is not designed to be the leader of your life. Amen. The Holy Spirit is the leader of your life, and the mind must command, take commands from the Holy Spirit. It does not rule you, it does not dominate you as much as it tries to do it. Uh, the Holy Spirit in our lives. So this speaking with tongues dethrones the mind, and we do something we do not understand. Uh, I, I speak in languages I do not understand. I prayed that day. I, I did not understand. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in places where I prayed beyond my understanding. Moments when I did not know how to pray and thank God for the Holy Spirit who took up residence and gave this woman utterance, gave me utterance and taught me how to pray. Then John the Baptist said of this baptism of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 3, and as I said, John the Baptist in Matthew 3 really didn't dwell on the fact so much that Jesus is the Lamb of God that is coming to say, take away the sins of the world, although he, he did say that. But he talked more about this baptism with the Spirit. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, John the Baptist said this about this baptism with the Spirit. Matthew 3, 10, he said, The axe, the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. And every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is cut down and it is cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he is coming after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, gather his wheat into the garner, but he's going to burn up, and this word means that which is useless, bad, doesn't produce. He's going to burn that up with unquenchable fire. And John the Baptist said this baptism is an axe laid to the root of the tree. Now, without me teaching on this, let's go back to the beginning of human history and realize that the beginning of human history were two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. 
And Eve ate of the wrong tree and gave to her husband, and he followed her. And so right at the beginning of human history is this picture of two trees. And then John the Baptist picks up on this, and he said, look, there are trees that don't bring forth good fruit. I think the New Testament word for that is going to be flesh, sin. There are things in us that don't bring forth good fruit. And this baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is going to go right to the root level of our lives. The Holy Spirit's not going to deal with surface things. The Holy Spirit's going to go to the unseen root level of our lives. Now, hear this. Every one of us in here deal with life from roots. Uh, it's the way we respond. Some people have the root of anger, and they're just mad. They don't even know what they're mad about. That's just the way they handle life. Some people have roots of, of uh, offense, super sensitive. Everybody in here has root systems. And these are the responses that we make to life. And John the Baptist said they're just bad roots in there. And the Holy Spirit is not going to come and clean the leaves up that are on the trees. The Holy Spirit's going to go right to the root of our lives. And he's not going to change what we do. He's going to change who we be. You shall be witnesses. You won't do witness and you'll be a witness. And, and John the Baptist said right down here, he's just going to bring every tree down that doesn't bring forth good fruit. Now, everybody in here has got tree in you that doesn't bring forth good fruit. Uh, I know we look very Christian tonight. We all polish our halos, but uh, we understand uh, we, we're in the process of being worked on. Now, I was brought up in a very good family, but my father was not a Christian, and daddy's name was Sam, and Sam was high-tempered. When Daddy lost his temper, everybody knew it. Our Daddy said what he thought. He didn't beat people. He didn't throw furniture at us. He just said what he thought. And when Dad would lose his temper, Mom would cry. My little sister would suck her thumb. My bro little brother would go in the backyard and throw his baseball against the garage. And I would fight with Daddy because I just loved a good fight. And I was like his side of the family. We all had big mouths, loud mouths, so I could get as loud as Daddy. And Daddy and I'd beat on the table, and we'd point our fingers at each other and slam cabinet doors. And then when we were finished, we'd go out and have a burger together. You know, I mean, we didn't hold resentment. Daddy called it laying the cards on the table. Now, my mom's crying, my sister's sucking her thumb. But Dad and I enjoyed the fight, you know. We just enjoyed it. And we'd go eat burgers and just forget about it till the next fight. Dad fought with his mother that way. Uh, I just grew up learning to deal with life like that. So then I married Jean. And when Jean wouldn't obey me, oh, I'd, I'd just do what I just did with Daddy. And Jean would just say to me, look, June, if you don't like it, there's the door. You can just walk out and leave. Make me mad. I want him to slam some doors and we would go have a burger. And he'd just, you know, just, you know, ignore me. And I was 42 years old. And I, I still had this high temper. Now, I had learned to control it in places like this. Because they won't let you speak, Tom, if you act ugly. And, and, 
Jim won't let me speak if I throw temper tantrums with him, and you won't let me speak. So I, I'd learned to control it in church. I was just this sweet little Southern girl. But when Jean, my children, wouldn't do what I wanted them to do, didn't do what I thought they ought to do, I, I just was Sam. And Jean had a name for me. He'd say, oh, dear God, here comes Sammy June. And then I would call him Miss Lois. He's like his mother. So I would call him Miss Lois, and he'd Sammy June me, you know, and there we were. Now, I was 42 years old, baptized with the Holy Spirit, 12 years, in ministry. And I had this whole thing going on down here. Hit it in church, but there's a root in me. So one day, I'm preparing to teach on Wednesday night, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And the Holy Spirit said, uh, I want you to put Sammy June to death. And I said, oh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I said, uh, I don't, she's not that bad. <laughs> God didn't agree with me. You know, God just didn't agree with me. And I had to crucify that. I, I genuinely did not think I could do it. I was 42 years old, and I had been trained by my father to be this way. It was my root system of dealing with frustration and a husband that irritated me and boys that wouldn't do what I wanted them to do. And now the Holy Spirit says, Sammy June has to die. And I don't want to take the time. Crucifixion's slow, and it's painful, but it works. <laughs> And the day came when Sammy June died, and I was freed from Sammy June. It was about three years later after that, Jean and I were in Marquette, Michigan. We had spoken in a church. We really did not know the pastor there. We were eating Sunday dinner after we had preached there. The pastor said to us, you must eat coconut cream pie here, world famous. And he said, the piece is so big, the two of you can divide it. So we ordered coconut cream pie to be divided. They bring it out on a platter. It was literally this big. It rose off of that platter. It was a big, huge piece of pie. They set it between Jean and me and give us each a fork. I took the first bite outstanding. I can't tell you how good it was. Outstanding. So the pastor, while I'm swallowing that first bite, said to me, how many children do you have? I said, two. He said, boys or girls? I said, boys. I said, how many do you have? And he said, three. I said, boys or girls? He told me. He said, do you have grandchildren? We didn't at the time. I said, no. Do you? And he said, no. What is that, a minute gone by? I turned back for bite number two of my coconut cream pie. Gene has dropped his chin to table level, and he is shoveling in the last bite of coconut cream pie. Will you raise your hand and tell everybody you're guilty of that? You are guilty of that. If he tells you he didn't do that, he's lying. He ate my last bite of coconut cream pie. And I'm going for bite number two, and the last bite is in his mouth. And when I saw that, resurrection power started down in my legs. 
It traveled up my legs and through my nervous system, and I felt Sammy June rising from the dead. I thought the dirty rat ate my pie. I can't believe he ate my pie. I wanted to stab him with the fork and hit him with the menu, and he looked up and saw my face, and fear came in his eyes. He knew that Sammy June had been resurrected. And I'll tell you the truth, I was about to tell him what I thought of him and the marriage and all that stuff I hadn't been saying for three years, but I got it filed away, girls, in case I need it. I was just going to unload on him when I thought about that pastor. And I thought, well, we preached on love and forgiveness today, and now I'm about to kill him with a fork. So I cleared my throat. <laughs> And laid my fork down and said to my sweet southern boys, tell me more about your family. <laughs> now, Gene says in his ministry, he has a gift of healing. He's seen blind eyes open, resurrections from the dead. He's seen lame people walk, death is open. But he said he has never seen power like he saw it on the day when Sammy June rose from the dead and I put her back down again. <laughs> he said he knew there was a God in heaven that gave women power. He understood power when he saw me put Sammy June back down in the grave again. But he learned his lesson. He leaves half of the pie for me now. So this baptism with the Holy Spirit is this, this transition from mind to spirit. It's, it's the Holy Spirit going down to root levels. Sometimes people, we don't even know what's wrong with us. How, how many of you have ever thought, I don't know what makes me act like that. <laughs> you know, I don't know why I do that. And, and the Holy Spirit goes into these root levels and he lays an ax to everything in there that's bad and useless and doesn't produce his fruit. The ax laid to the root of the tree. And then the Holy Spirit fills us. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now the human skeleton is designed such that the rib cage comes out like this, the hip bones recede. We've got a huge hole right here. Uh, medical science calls this area your core. And, and they teach us that life comes from the core. This, this is life, the core. And uh, they have taught Gene and I, as we have aged, that we, we must keep this core strong. We must keep this core healthy. And, and this rib cage that comes out in the skeletal frame that goes back and this hole in the middle is a statement by God that at our very core is an empty place waiting to be filled. And it will be filled with something because it is waiting to be filled. Uh, every, every person has that, that empty place. And we search for that which satisfies, which makes us content, that thing which fills us and makes us complete. And the Bible teaches us that on the day of Pentecost, these believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. And this filling uh, of the Holy Spirit 
in, in Ephesians chapter 5 is, is likened to being drunk. Uh, Paul said this way, Do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Now, when we compare the filling of the Holy Spirit with being drunk with wine, because we all understand, you know, drunk with wine, we understand that nobody is ever drunk uh, without the presence of the thing that makes you drunk. Uh, you, you just have to have uh, liquor, alcohol, something that will make you drunk. You just don't get drunk without being uh, intoxicated with, with liquor. And we also know about drunks that you do not get drunk singing about it. You can sing about beer and wine all day and never get drunk. Uh, you don't get drunk uh, by watching other people drink. You can go to the bar and watch people drink, and you'll never get drunk. Uh, it won't do you any good to carry the wine bottle in your hip pocket. You'll never get drunk with the wine bottle in your hip pocket or sitting on the shelf of your cabinet. No one ever goes to bed sober and wakes up drunk because drunk takes, takes an effort. No one ever gets drunk by living with a drunk, going to uh, beer halls with drunks, or running around with drunks. Uh, you can actually give uh, a drunk papers, name tags, and credentials which testify he's a drunk, but until he gets drunk, he's not a drunk. It doesn't matter what kind of papers he, he carries. The only way to be drunk is to be filled with liquor to the point that the liquor now controls you. And when the liquor controls you, uh, the language changes. The way a drunk talks is different from a sober person. The way a drunk walks is different from a sober person. The way a drunk thinks is different from a sober person. The way a drunk drives is different. And Paul says, look, you, you don't want to go that route, but you are going to be filled with the Spirit. And, and he's telling us that this filling with the Spirit is going to take deliberate action. It's not just this one-time thing that's going to happen like a drunk gets drunk tonight and he never gets drunk again, but it's going to be this constant presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And uh, we say to ourselves, well, how do we know what fills us? How do I know what I'm full of tonight? And the Bible tells us out of the abundance of what fills you, your mouth will speak. So you can listen to yourself talk. And, and if you listen to yourself talk, it tells you what you're full of. And you know, the, our kids use this phrase, you're just full of it, and then they have their it's that they put in there. And they understand we're supposed to be full of something. And we need to be filled with the Spirit. Now, this, this one story, and then we're going to pray for you. I, I was mentored by uh, an 80-year-old missionary. I was 30 years old, baptized with the Spirit. Sister Agnes Hood had had the baptism with the Spirit over 50 years when I met her. 
and she was a mentor to me. She was uh, a woman whose husband divorced her back in the early years of her life when she spoke with other tongues. She sold everything she had and went to the mission field at age 60. Her church would not send her because she was too old, so she sells everything and lives in the jungles of South America, ministering to the tribes and the headhunters of South America. Came home in her late 70s, and I met her at that point, and I would go to her little apartment, and we would pray together and talk together. She was just an outstanding woman, and I, I didn't know a lot about the Holy Spirit, and she taught me. And at the point I'm telling the story now, Sisterhood was uh, several days away from dying. I did not know it at the time. She was in the hospital. They had had to amputate a leg, and she was not doing well. This was in the 70s, and in the 70s, they didn't have as many resources as we do today. And they basically just hooked her up to some tubes and were letting her die, 80-year-old woman. It was my night to spend the night with her because the nurses had told us they couldn't always get to her room. She, she was comatose almost, uh, sedated. She basically uh, was just sleeping all day. And they wanted someone there in case she needed something and couldn't press a buzzer. So it was my time to spend the night in the hospital. And it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm reading by a little nightlight. This old woman, a couple of days away from death, arms stretched out with tubes, and she hasn't moved for hours. A nurse comes in to give her some kind of shot. She had a long needle, and she motioned to me. She was going to flip her on her side and put it in her hip. And so I stood on one side of the bed, and the nurse stood on the other, and she kind of rolled her over my way. And when she put that needle in Sisterhood's hip, it, it must have waked her up. I don't know if it hurt or what, but that old woman sat straight up in bed like somebody had, you know, awakened her. She raised her arms like this with tubes coming out of it, and began to speak in tongues at the top of her voice. And she was saying, King Dorange Besura. And that nurse jumped like this. <laughs> and I thought, oh, dear God. And I'm just petting her like, you know, I don't know what's going on. And that nurse ran around and got her chart, and she's reading the chart. And sisterhood, Besura. And that nurse ran out down the hallway, came back with another nurse. And now they're looking at her and reading the chart and talking. And I'm just playing ignorant, just patting her on the back. And I thought, I'm not touching this with a 10-foot pole. I'm not going to touch this. And then finally, those two nurses said, well, I guess we better bring her doctor down here. And I thought, dear God, it's 2.10 in the morning and... They're going to get this guy out of bed, and all she's doing is speaking in tongues. And so I said to the two nurses, I said, look, I've known her a long time, and I said, she often has fits like this. <laughs> <laughs> and that nurse says, she does? I said, yeah, I've been in her apartment. And I've seen these fits. I said, she does this quite often. And I said, this isn't unusual for her to have a fit like this. And I said, if you two just get out of the room, I said, I think I can get her back to bed. 
And they said, do you think you can? I said, yeah, I think I can. And I did. They left, and I put the old woman back to bed, and she went back into her comatose condition. And so I picked up my book to read again. But I tell you, it was a, it's one of those little things that happened that was a life-changing moment for me. I thought, this old woman has been praying in the Holy Ghost for over 50 years. This woman knew the Holy Ghost like nobody I had ever met. She taught me about the Holy Spirit. She told me how to pray in the Holy Spirit. And later I would know she was dying. And I, I thought about it. I thought, she's laying here on this bed, comatose, doesn't even know what's going on. And they come in in the middle of the night and stick her, and the Holy Spirit came out. The Holy Spirit came out. And I made a decision that night in that room. I said, I'm going to be the kind of woman that when the world sticks me, the Holy Spirit will come out. So instead of stabbing Jean with a fork now, I just go, King Dorande. <laughs> Maybe it'll work better for you other girls than it does with me, but you can try it and see if it works. <laughs> Praise God. Well, anybody would just, just really have to think long and hard to turn down this great offer of God. Amen. You need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So let's stand to our feet. If you're not baptized with the Holy Spirit tonight, don't miss it. Just come right on down here. We're not going to embarrass you. We're, we're going to all pray with you. It's going to be a great night. If you don't speak with tongues, just come on down. Just come on and join us down here. We're going to ask our prayer. Here comes one. There's more than this. I know there's more than this. If you don't have freedom in tongues, you just come on. Anybody else? Don't be afraid. Greatest decision of your life. Come on, girls. You're supposed to be down here. Come on. Come on, girls. You're going to be glad. Make a straight line across here. Jim, just, Jim help me get them kind of lined up. I do not pray with tongues. I want to. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. I'm gonna ask the I'm gonna ask the team to be here, Gene and uh, Dr. Coke. And God's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit tonight. Can you hear me right here? Do I need a handheld mic? Am I all right? Now I want us all to pray together with these so they don't they don't feel, you know, so isolated up here. At the moment we start praying, we're all going to pray with you. But here's, here's what's going to happen. Uh, we're, we're going to ask the, the Lord Jesus to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Bible says, ask and you shall receive. So I'm, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And in that prayer, we're going to ask that this promise of the Father, this baptism with the Holy Spirit is going to be yours tonight. And, and you receive it. And you do not receive it by feeling. You receive it by faith. So all of you may have different experiences. Uh, some of you may laugh. Some may cry. Some may feel something. Some may not feel anything. It's not based on experience. It's based on believing. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. And how many believe Jesus tells you the truth? Amen. And he said, you're not going to get a false thing. You're going to get the real thing. 
ask and you will receive. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer and we're going to ask him to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If you have anything against anybody, you need to forgive them. And that'll be part of our prayer. If you're not even born again, that will be part of our prayer because the only requirement to the baptism of the Holy Spirit is you must be born again. And then you will be baptized. All of that will be in the prayer. And when we come to the end of that prayer, it will now be up to you to do something. Now remember when you were born again, you had to do something. You had to confess with your mouth. You had to do something with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. You had to repent. You had to say, he's my Lord. You had to believe, and you were saved. And the Holy Spirit took up residence within you. So if you're born-again Christians, the Holy Spirit's already inside of you. What's going to happen now is he's going to come out of you and, and come upon you. Not in you, but upon you. And the only place he can come out is your mouth. He won't come out your fingernails, your nose, your ears. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak. So this is where you're going to do something natural. They, Acts 2, 4 says, began to speak with other tongues. They began to speak as the Spirit gave them the utterance. So you will begin to speak. That's going to be perfectly natural. That is not supernatural. And people say to me, how do you begin to speak? And you begin to speak by opening your mouth. Can't talk with your mouth closed. And you do like a little baby learning to speak English. You know what that little baby learning to speak a language does? Opens his mouth, moves his lips, moves his tongue, and makes sounds in his throat. And he talks like this. Mama, Dada. Now, if that child never began to speak, he would never be given utterance. But because he begins with Mama, Dada, by the time he's 20 years old, he's been given utterance. And he says, Mom and Dad. And sometimes that little baby, because I've, I've got little grandchildren, says things that sound absolutely uh, ludicrous to me. And they say things like, and I think, that is just gibberish. And the mother says he wants a cookie. That's what that meant. <laughs> he want, and he did. That was what he said. He wanted a cookie. And the Bible says when you pray with other tongues, you're not talking to us. You're talking to Almighty God. And you don't have to, uh, you know, listen to yourself and judge yourself. God's not going to let anything bad happen here. You're going to receive the mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit tonight, Lori. The Holy Spirit's going to sit upon you. The Holy Spirit's going to be a fire, an axe. He's going to come and change your life. Hallelujah. Great work for you all right here. So let's all pray this prayer together, and, and then the team will just lay hands, Gene and the team up here, and Dr. Coat and Jim and Tom somewhere, and we'll come lay hands on you. But when we finish the prayer, we'll all begin to pray in our prayer languages. You down here, open your mouths. Make a sound. Move your lips. Move your tongue. 
You cannot talk with your mouth closed. So you do your part. The Holy Spirit will give you the utterance. Now let's all of us pray this together with them. Father, I thank you tonight. Jesus Christ is my Lord. I am a child of God. I break all contact with the devil. I forgive those who've wronged me. I am cleansed by the blood of Jesus. He was raised from the dead that I can walk in newness of life. But I need power from on high. And I ask you now for this baptism with the Holy Spirit. I receive it now. I have asked. I do receive. I'm going to open my mouth. I'm going to move my lips. I'm going to move my tongue. I'm going to make a sound. And the Holy Spirit is going to give me utterance. Glory to God. Now open your mouths and let's all start praying in tongue. Open your mouths. Orange Bekosonda.